Hi and welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Let's Talk Surgery podcast for the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh. I'm your host, Ceci Hosonu, Pediatric Surgery Registrar in Scotland. We don't have Greg today because he is operating, but I'm sure you guys will miss his voice. This is a continuation of our fantastic Faculty of Surgical Trainers series for the college, and this time we're going international. I'm absolutely honoured to be speaking today to Professor Philip Carson, who is a general surgeon, I believe recently retired, in Australia in the North Territory. How are you today, Philip? I'm very good, thanks, Ceci, and wide, wide awake and ready to go. Great. Um, so for those of you who are um, scholars of geography or who are interested in this sort of thing, the wonders of technology have made it so that we can talk. So where Professor Carson is at the moment, it's about 6 p.m. and it is 9.30 in the morning on the same day where I am, which is absolutely fantastic. So when we started the conversation earlier, he started with good evening and I started with good morning. That was quite funny. So what we like to do, first of all, with every guest that we have on the podcast is get to know a little bit about the individual. So we'll start with a nice open question. Who is Professor Philip Carson? It is very open, isn't it? So I'm an old bloke, well, fairly old anyway, at the, at the far end of my clinical career. And um, I'm, uh, as you said, a general surgeon. And from a young age, although I was brought up in a, in a southern city in Adelaide, uh, you know, in Australia, I had a, a desire to go somewhere where there were fewer surgeons, fewer doctors. And so um, that could have been many places in the world, but it has, so happens that in Australia we had some spots too. So the Northern Territory is, um, it's about one-sixth of the whole Australian continent, but it's only got 1% of the population and uh, very far from other major centres. So that's a real challenge, as you can imagine, to uh, to deliver surgical services. And I was always interested in that. So I came up here as a young doctor and then went away and trained, including several years in uh, in Kettering in North Ants, which was a, a lovely time. And then uh, once I was fully trained, I came back and I've been working here for the last 30 years. And uh, as part of that, I've always been a... I just loved, loved teaching too. And so I did get involved in the uh, Australasian College Affairs and, uh, and have just finished, uh, just two weeks ago, I've finished my term as Censor-in-Chief of the, the college, which has been both a great privilege, a bit of hard work at times too, but uh, a great privilege, uh, you know, um, seeing education from that, uh, that pointy end. Fantastic. And um, I'm absolutely honoured as a surgical trainee myself um, to speak to or have the opportunity to speak to trainers like yourself, because surgery is one of the last few apprenticeships in medicine, and it is very much a craft specialty. So the fact that we have a series that's focusing on trainers is absolutely fantastic to me, because it's important to inspire the younger generation to keep training and keep doing what we do. So next, we've got a few quick fire questions for you. The first of which is, who was your best trainer and why? Well, Ceci, that, that's a once again a, a profound question, isn't it? Because there's it's, been so many people involved in training and mentoring over the for me over the years, and I've sort of got in mind this ideal ideal trainer, and I've actually taken 
uh, taken aspects of different people going through, and I've done this not not just in response to your question, but over the years I've sort of sought to do that. So if I can cheat a little bit, I'll just describe some trainers and their aspects I really uh, admired so much in them. And one was my boss in uh, in one of the bosses in Kettering in uh, mm-hmm. in North End at that time, and he's just was a wonderful trainer in the sense that he was a whole. He looked after the whole trainee. So uh, he looked as a whole person and uh, um, just sought to make my experience there um, as full as possible. He'd take me down to London to meetings and then uh, rock up to you know, some person who had their name to an operation or something and say, this is Phil Carson from, you know, from the Antipodes and, and just to give me that sort of thrill. And so did lots of things and he's become a, a lifelong friend also. So, so that, was, that was certainly a, a good model. And then there was another one that very early on in my training who was incredibly slow, particular surgeon, and award rounds were terrible, you know, were, were very slow. But what I admired about him so much and what he demonstrated to me, he took the same care for every patient in the hospital, didn't matter where they were socially, medically, uh, um, you know, anything. He just took that same meticulous care. And I thought that was a, a huge lesson. And there was another professor there too, who was a wonderful operator, uh, Professor. Jamison, who just made operations look easy. And sometimes I've worked with some trainers who that if I, I found that intimidating because they can't necessarily hand that confidence and skill onto others. But uh, this Professor Jamison was a wonderful teaching assistant too and just gave lots of confidence. And that was a, another, another point. And, um, and others, surgeons were quite, um, they were sort of perhaps even considered as hard surgeons they were quite rigid in a way but they they thought out their their methods very clearly and it gave an excellent template to to um you know to establish a, a surgical practice on which you could vary on as i went on but uh, certainly if you did things exactly the same as murray peacock did or or steve badley did I, I knew that was a good good fallback position so that was a good thing too and the other thing, um, just thinking about, you know, trainers is the trainers, tra- being trained is a lifelong thing. And we say learning is a lifelong thing. So obviously having trainers and mentors is a lifelong thing too. And as I've got to the, you know, latter stage of my career, my mentors have become younger than, than me. And the characteristic, thing that, so putting all those together, I think the reason why they were all such good trainers is that they, um, they were keen to share knowledge. They didn't see knowledge as a thing to be grasped or for them to, to keep their little niche or some advantage. They just wanted to share knowledge because they saw that was the way that more patients would, would get treated. And um, so there was yeah, people who were generous in knowledge and that they, in my case, I was always impressed when the people in, uh, treated patients and their families as sort of whole, whole persons. And all of those ones I've mentioned, they, they all did that to patients too. So that's what made them good trainers in my my in my life absolutely fantastic um i think all of us are the sum total of the trainers that have inspired us as we've gone through our careers and i find it so humbling and so inspiring the fact that you acknowledged even the younger generation coming after you learning from them because one of my favorite trainers um she always said to me the day you stop learning is the day you stop growing and that's something that's really stuck with me so you've spoken about all these fantastic people who've inspired you. What do you yourself enjoy most about training and imparting knowledge on the people you've come across? I think one of the best things about training is that there's more than one of you. 
to face any problem or any anything, isn't it? And you think about training, it's often you're doing it with with a group, isn't it? It's not just not just your trainee, it might be the fellow as well and the medical student and that involved. And it's so wonderful to tackle any any surgical problem or any any person with a surgical problem with uh, you know multiple or doing it as a team rather than by yourself. And uh, so I think that's perhaps one of the most gratifying things about trainees that you you actually are part of a team and and not just uh, you know going on lonely and uh, um, or just relying on yourself only for your judgment. And the other big thing I think is it's value added. So you know, you're certainly serving the needs of the patient and their family at the time, and that's very that's a great thing to do. And I guess it's our primary task. But how much better is it then when you're actually fulfilling that patient's needs to actually uh, be handing on skills and knowledge and attitudes and that to a, uh, another another person or persons. And so it just makes the time you're spending, even if it's two in the morning and, and you know, you just long to be back in bed, uh, just slowing down a little bit and, um, and uh, teaching or training or trying to hand on, on skills or even if it's just, even if you can hardly talk, but just, it's just sharing that that um, experience with others and knowing that's going to go on. And I think that's looking back at this end of my career, that's that's the most satisfying thing to know that that time spent is um, is going to be replicated, you know, in, in exponentially. Uh, those people will take little bits of, of me away like I have those people I've mentioned and they will perhaps impart that to their trainees and their trainees. And so not only will it go down that way or, you know, Hundreds of thousands of patients may be influenced by some little little part of my of something I've handed on, and that's pretty pretty gratifying and exciting feeling, I reckon. It is. What a lovely answer. Now, moving on to one of my favourite questions, because um, I'm a huge lover of music. If you played music in theatre, what would you play? Mm. So I love music too, especially in and over quite a, a range. But I'm one of those grumps in theatre because commonly, you know, these days I walk in and somebody's got their music on and I always ask to turn it off, which is, which is a terrible thing. But being, I think, perhaps a, a man, a little bit on, on the spectrum or something, I can just do one, concentrate on one thing well. And if I've got good music in the background or music with a heavy beat or, or great words or something, I, being a man, I can't do two things at once. So, so, uh, for, for less crucial operations, I like a little bit of quiet jazz uh, without you know, too much of the, the words, and I can relax in that. Uh, but generally speaking, for anything uh, tense, I, I have the, the music off, which is, yeah, I, it's going to disappoint you <laughs> if you came, Ceci, <laughs> but I, I just think the you know, prime focus is the patient, and for me, that's that worked best. Not disappointing at all. It's um different strokes for different folks. And at the end of the day, you need to have conditions that allow you to optimise your performance. Um, I love that you like a bit of jazz. My absolute favourite is a bit of Johnny Coltrane. Absolutely mm. fantastic. But, he's, um, he's not very quiet, though. He's <laughs> not, no. <laughs> you kind of have to jam along to it. And I can see how that can be distracting if you're trying to do some complex surgery. Okay, mm. next question. So you're stranded on a desert island. And you've been told you can only take one surgical tool to this desert island. Which which tool would you take, and why? What is your absolute favourite? Yeah, I mean that's that's a, a great situation to put yourself in, isn't it? And you've got all these fun things you do, and the laparoscopes and the staples and all that. 
uh, fun, but gee, you, you wouldn't want to be your only thing. And I reckon an arterial clamp would be the, the thing I'd, I'd want in my pocket. And I think you could make do with a bit of, I don't know, all sorts of things for ties and, to, and dressings and so forth. But uh, just an arterial clamp will, will save life and allow you to do, you know, a certain amount of surgery, I reckon. So I'd, I'd be putting that in my pocket. Interesting answer. We've not had any clamps on the podcast just yet. We've had headlamps, we've had scalpels, we've had a good pair of forceps. But um, clamps, I can see your logic there. It will save lives if the situation presents itself. So next question is about books and reading. And again, on the podcast, tons of people will know I absolutely love to read. Which two books are your absolute favourites? One medical and one non-medical. I love reading too, Sissy, you know. In fact, uh, yes, it's one of my, my big either strengths or weaknesses is, uh, is reading. And uh, medically, uh, one book that's actually uh, I was impressed, been impressed with all my working life, in fact, and that's Operative uh, Urology by John Blandy. Now, do you know of John Blandy? Is his name still probably? Yes, I have that book on my shelf. <laughs> You've got that one? I do. Oh, is that book. Right? Well, the thing I, I loved about John Blandy, the way he wrote it, one, he illustrated himself beautifully, didn't he? And he just didn't do it. But he writes it as though he expects you to be doing the operation. And I used to get some books I'd read and, and you'd read it and they just saying, you know, this is how I do it. But I wouldn't expect anybody else in the world to be able to do it because only I do it better. Whereas John Blandy was clearly a, a person who handed, who wanted to hand on knowledge. And I guess the best thing, though, at the end of each uh, section is, uh, you know, those tips, tips and traps to avoid. And he was very clear that he'd made all of those, those, did all those things wrong himself at some stage. And I think that's, that's terrific. And because I've worked up uh, here in Darwin, which is about 3000 kilometers from the nearest center. And for the first 15 years, we didn't have a urologist even. And so from one year of urology in England added to my general surgery, I was, we were doing a lot of that. And so a book like John Blandy's with that warmth that I could just feel coming through the pages and that, that honesty about things going wrong was incredibly valuable. So that's, that's on the technical or the surgical side. And I, I love reading because I just want to know why people do things. I want to know about motivations, about, about how people work. And so I love novels for that reason because they, you know, good, good novel will, uh, will do that well. And I like history and biography for the same reason, like theology, putting all those things together to try to work out why people, why people do things they, as they do. Um, and so uh, there's been lots of books that have, you know, been, uh, been significant in my thinking then over the years. But just, uh, just on this weekend, in fact, I've just read one that I was very impressed with, and that's uh, by Michael Lewis called The Premonition. And some of your, our listeners may know Michael Lewis. He wrote The, the Big Short, and, um, which was made into a film, and several other uh, books which I've read before. But this one is about the COVID response in America. Mm. And, and he looks at it very much the way... You know, I want books. He looks at in, for individuals who actually stood out from the from the mainstream. What was going on? People who actually saw things differently, and uh, it just it reads like a thriller. Um, but it's real life. It's you know con- contemporary over the last eighteen months in real life. Reads like a thriller, but it gives he's, um, he gives uh, insight into why people do things as they did, 
and um, that allows you to empathise with those people even while sort of, you know, being, being almost in despair about the disorganisation and the and the you know, the lack of, I guess, a good public health service in, in America, in the USA particularly. Um, but it's certainly not going to con- condemnatory thing. It's a, it's pointing out why, you know, why people do things as they do. So um, that would be one I'd recommend. And, uh, yeah, and it's just stuck in my mind. I just couldn't put it down for 24 hours on a few days ago. So, Oh, fantastic. I think if we met in person, we'd have a lot to talk about because I'm much the same. I could see us talking <laughs> many evenings. Oh, oh, yeah, I'm much the same about books. I mean, currently I'm reading a lot of psychology and leadership type things, and I've just finished Black Box Thinking by Matthew Said, which I think is very well known in the healthcare industry. And um, as you see, much like this book you've described, it really attempts to dissect the human condition and the reason why people do things. And I find books like that absolutely fascinating. So thank you for the recommendation. I know what I'm going to read next. So um, we've talked a bit about um, your interests in terms of reading. We all know that surgery is difficult, the training is long, and the hours are long as well. How do you attempt to keep a good work-life balance? Ceci, this is one of the things I'm I'm a, a poor example of, I think, or <laughs> I don't know how, how well I would advise anybody else. Because, um, you know, I've loved the, doing the, the surgery over the years. It's been a vocation rather than a you know, job to drag myself along to. And, you know, dragging yourself away from it has been, been a problem. And yet I also love my family and love, you know, my friends too. And they need time and investment as well, let alone a bit of health and exercise and so forth. And I reckon that getting that balance has been one of the biggest struggles and ongoing struggles, in fact, because I've you know, just stopped the clinical work recently, but then taken on a whole lot of other things. And I just had a, call it a discussion, but one of our robust inter- interactions with my wife just the other day, and she says, look, you're doing it again. You're taking too much on. And uh, and I guess, so I guess in my case, marrying that right person, that sort of strong woman who can stay and stay there has been um, helping me but it, well, you know has, has helped me draw a path through um but uh, i'm not sure that's uh, you know the answer just relying on somebody else but it's certainly that's that's uh, one way i've got it in my my case and i guess just having that you know those interests so i can see other colleagues who haven't developed any interests outside of their their work and um you know some of them have run into trouble with that when you rely on work for your whole socialization your whole meaning and so forth um, so I think it really is important to have some things going, and, and certainly you know, family's a great thing if you've if you've got it. Um, but other other sorts of endeavours outside the, the surgery work is important too. Definitely, such good words of wisdom. I know it's um, sometimes really easy to be drawn into that surgical bubble and not know how to leave. But it, as you say, it's important to have some interests outside work to keep you grounded. And I'm very glad that you have such a supportive family. Your wife sounds awesome. So um, last but not least, you've had a fantastic career and we'd love to have you on the podcast for a full length episode to explore a little bit about what you did as you were developing as a surgeon and the lessons you've learned. But from all the experiences you've had, if you could give us one pearl of wisdom, the best bit of advice you've either heard or given to somebody, what would it be? Well, I reckon, well, I'm in a privileged position of this this end of my career, looking back, I guess, and seeing what, what 
what sort of is lasting, what's important. And I think perhaps the, the most, or the most concentrated pearl I could give to people is to keep your focus on serving the patients and others. And I think, you know, developing a career in surgery is a great thing and learning skills and becoming an expert in, in areas and uh, acknowledgement, you know, for being that expert and, and in making money. And that is all, is all you know, very legitimate and good stuff. But I've just seen um, in in others where that becomes the main focus. It can often end up very cynical um, and you know a feeling of hollowness looking back. And I think just keeping that focus on that you know, that you what you're doing and trying to develop as a person and surgeon is to actually do that so you can serve others rather than to to somehow you know get personal gain from it. I think that's that's made. Well, I've found that releasing and sustaining in times when you get so frustrated with the health service. I know you do in the NHS and it's the same here and frustrated with colleagues and um, or if you're going through a bad time with, you know, some adverse outcomes and stuff and just keeping that focus um, it, it sort of helps you, has helped me through that, through a lifetime of that surgery. An amazing pearl to leave us with. Um, as you know, the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh is so passionate about patient safety and the patients are the reason we do everything we do. So keeping the focus, that is a fantastic pearl. Well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Thank you so much, Professor Carson, for joining us today. And as I said before, we'd love to have you back to talk about what must have been an absolutely fascinating career. Guys, Make sure that you continue to stay safe and you continue to be kind to each other. And we will catch up with you in the next podcast at a later date. Bye, everyone.